So it's uh, my privilege and our privilege to welcome back Reg Shute. Uh, Reg has been a regular visitor to Hope Fellowship, and um, what I really appreciate about Reg, he, he was raised in the evangelical church like most of us, but he has the courage to challenge conventional thinking and dig deep into the word and find out what it means through the grace lens. And the last time he was here, he gave us an absolutely amazing talk on the end times. And if you haven't had a chance to watch the YouTube video, I would strongly encourage it. It was such a hope-filled, positive perspective on something that for years has kept people enslaved to fear about what's coming and this negative perspective on the end times. So he's back with another hot topic from what I understand. And so please welcome Red Shoot with me. <coughs> well, good morning. It's good to be back again. Uh, when Mike asked me to speak again, uh, I had another message on my heart. And I know that last, uh, last time I spoke, it was, uh, I got a lot of good feedback. And I, um, I got a lot of people asking me to do like a part two of, uh, of the eschatology message that I did. And I've got kind of a simple answer is, I probably will someday, but not today. <laughs> but I promise you today will be just as controversial. Because the nice thing about being invited up to Hope Fellowship is I get to drop bombs and then Mike can clean up the mess after. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do today. Mike asked me if I knew what I was speaking on today, and uh, it is a hot topic because I'm going to be speaking on hell. And when Mike, asked, uh, Mike made the comment back to me, well, that's a hot topic, I said, do they teach you that kind of bad humor in Bible college, or does that just come natural? <laughs> Anyways, what about hell? Um, yeah, it's, it's a hot topic, all right. But, uh, but I don't think it's what, what we really think it really is. And so I was raised um, in the evangelical faith, if you will, theology, as probably most of you were. And uh, like anybody, uh, hell was, was a pretty terrifying topic for, for kids especially, with the uh, prospect of not making it to heaven and going to hell and being under eternal torment and fire and all that stuff. And it was such a terrifying topic, we wouldn't even use the word hell in, in our open speech. We would spell it, but we wouldn't just spell it normal. We'd spell it Canadian style. So we would spell it H-E, double hockey stick, right? Doesn't get any more Canadian than that, right? Or should I say A? Anyways, it was, it was a really terrifying um, t subject to talk about back then uh, when we were kids, especially when you link that together with the whole rapture theology and all that too, and trying to, to live your life clean and pleasing to God so that you don't miss the rapture and don't end up in hell. So I really wanted to explore that today because there was 
There was one verse in particular, and we're going to get to that today, but there's one verse in particular that I got so hung up on over the years, I just couldn't get out of my head that it just didn't seem right. And so probably that's what motivated me to really grab a hold of this subject and and really look at it closely. But I'm going to make a shock statement this morning, and uh, I need to have a, a little agreement with you this morning. I'll make the shock statement on one condition, and that is, that y'all stick with me for a few minutes till I explain myself. Okay? All right. Maybe we should lock the back door so I don't lose everybody here. All right. So here goes the shock statement. Ready for this one? Hell is not actually in the Bible. It's not actually there. So, explanation time. So I, go to, I went to Wikipedia just to see what Wikipedia says on the topic of hell. And the word itself was derived out of Old English, they believe somewhere around 725 A.D. That is almost 700 years after the last book of the Bible was written. 700 years after the Bible, they come up with this word, hell. And the original meaning of the root word that was used to create the word hell, they believe means something like, one who covers up or hides something. That's the original meaning of the root word of hell. Again, 700 years after the Bible was written. The last book of the Bible. That kind of goes along with um, <clears throat> the word sin. Sin didn't exist when, uh, or the word sin, sorry, the word sin didn't exist when the Bible was written either. Uh, they used the word trespasses, usually. Uh, Sin was an old English word as well that got added in after. So, the word hell didn't exist when the Bible was written. So I wanted to have a look at some of the verses that the word hell was substituted into and what the real true meaning of it is. And here's what I found was in the New Testament, I'm just going to focus on the New Testament today for the most part, but the New Testament, there's three words that were taken from the uh, original language and translated into the common word hell. Now, looking at those three words, two of those three words have absolutely zero association with each other. They are so dissimilar that there's no way in hell that you can describe them by the same word as hell, right? So, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. Why are we using one common word to describe words that have no association with each other? It makes no sense. So the first word that's commonly translated into the modern-day word hell is Gehenna. Now, you'll probably recognize this from the last time I spoke, because I spoke about Gehenna last time. So I'm going to try not to beat this to death. I'm going to try and get this through, this through this quickly, because I do have a fair bit of material to, to present to you. And by all means, if I run late and your roast is burning, then you can leave. There will be no, I won't hold you against that. I mean, it was dead when you put it in the pan. Why kill it in the oven, right? Okay. So, Gehenna. Now, I did a search on this word, and I got a whole list of words that came up as, or verses, as these are the verses that the word hell was inserted in place of Gehenna. Okay? And the most common theme throughout every one of those verses is judgment. There's always judgment attached to the word Gehenna. All right? Now, 
Last time I spoke briefly on Matthew 23, and what was going on in Matthew 23 was that Jesus was at the temple talking to all of the religious leaders that were in the temple at the time, and he was telling them that uh, the judgment of Gehenna is coming, and you guys will not escape it, and the judgment of Gehenna is coming because of all of the righteous blood that was shed by you and your forefathers, your ancestors, starting right back from Abel all the way up to a guy by the name of Zachariah, who they recently had killed at the time in the temple. And Jesus saying, the blood of all these righteous men that you and your ancestors killed are going to be on your heads in your generation, and you will have to face the judgment of Gehenna because of this. Now this, this sounds really interesting to me because we've always been under the assumption that the religious leaders of the day did not agree with Jesus when he said, I am. Because when he said, I am, it meant, I am God, right? And so when, they, when he said, I am, we've all been taught, for the most part, that the religious leaders didn't agree with him on that. But they had an interesting response here when Jesus said, the blood of these righteous people that were killed by you and your ancestors are going to be on you in this generation. They're, they argued and they said, but we are nothing like our ancestors, well, why would they say that? If they didn't believe that Jesus was God, why did they say, but we're nothing like our ancestors? They're arguing with him. They're saying, you can't put this on us. So obviously they're acknowledging that he had the power to put that on them, right? Anyways, so they argued and said, you can't put that on us. And he said, you serpents, you brood vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to, and the proper word is, Gehenna? All right, talking about the, the judgment of Gehenna. And then we carry on with some other verses that talked about Gehenna. But I send you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to Gehenna fire. That's what that really says. And then we get into these other verses. Now these verses have been grossly misunderstood over the years. Uh, so let me give you a couple little bits of background. And I, I said this last time I was here that the judgment of Gehenna was basically... The fact that Jesus said, within your generation, when he spoke to the people in 30 AD, within your generation, you're going to face the, the judgment of Gehenna. And sure enough, 40 years later, which was the end of that generation that Jesus talked to, in 70 AD, 80,000 Roman soldiers showed up and slaughtered 1.1 million Jews and took the bodies and threw them into Gehenna. Gehenna was the city landfill. It was the dump. They were thrown in there like trash. Okay, 1.1 million people thrown into Gehenna and burned because that's what you did with dead bodies back then. You burned them. So that was the judgment of Gehenna. Now it's important to note that when Jesus was telling everybody they're going to face the judgment of Gehenna, he was speaking to a particular group of people. He spoke it directly to the religious leaders, but he also was only speaking to the people in Jerusalem. He was not speaking to all the Jews that were on the planet. He was speaking to Jerusalem. And if you really read through Matthew 23, you'll see that Jesus was really upset about Jerusalem. He was lamenting over Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem, and he was upset about what had become of Jerusalem. Right? And so the judgment of Gehenna was only against Jerusalem. That's where it happened. And Gehenna was the city landfall for, for Jerusalem. Now, here's a case of point is, if you pile up a million bodies 
in a place that actually he was in a, a valley called the Valley of Hymnon. If you pile up a million dead bodies there, do you think maybe that the blood will flow as, as thick as a horse's bridle at the bottom of the valley? Oh, was that a prophecy or a revelation? I think it was. We can probably scratch that off the list, right? It happened. Okay? So, so Jesus is telling these people they're going to face the judgment of Gehenna, and now he puts out this other warning here, which, as I said, has been grossly misinterpreted. What was happening there at the time was religion had just run rampant. Religion is bad. Okay? And if you're offended with that, then you're not really understanding what religion is all about. Religion is bad. Okay? And so religion had run rampant. And here's some of the things that were happening. I actually read accounts of similar stories. I'm just going to kind of make up the storyline just to, to prove the point. But I've heard of these types of stories from back then. Okay? So let's say that you went to the temple on the Sabbath to pay your tithes and to say your prayers. And on the way home, you're walking along and you're like, you know, the temple, there was so much blood flying everywhere because they're slaughtering animals. They're throwing the carcasses up on an altar and burning them. The, The sights and the smells must have been terrible. Must have been horrendous, right? And so you're walking home and you've got this like taste in your mouth from all this terrible stuff. And so you're just out of impulse, you, you spit to try and get rid of that taste, right? Next thing you know, there's a group of men around you. They grab you by your arms and drag you back to the temple and accuse you of working on the Sabbath. You're like, what the heck just happened? So they explain themselves. They say, well, we saw you spit in the dust. And spit is water. And when you mix water with dust, it makes mud. And making mud is working. So you worked on the Sabbath. That's how crazy this religious lifestyle and religious stuff had gotten. And so what the priest would do is he would say, okay, you're guilty of working on the Sabbath, so that means that you need to, to make amends for your sins. So I can, I can sacrifice a turtle dove for you. That should clear you up, and I'll do that for five shekels. So it had become a business. So remember when Jesus went into the temple and he threw all, all the money changers' tables over? It's because of that. It had become a business, trying to absolve people from sins. So what Jesus is saying here, he throws this warning out. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Better use to lose one of your members, then the whole body be thrown into Gehenna. Okay? So here's what he's saying. If you start seeing people the way these religious people see them, and you start getting involved in that lifestyle, then it's better for you to pull your eye out and get out of Dodge and leave. Because you'll be saved from Gehenna. But if you stay here, you're going to face the judgment of Gehenna. That's what he's saying. And he went on to say the same thing about your hand and your foot. Okay? Now, have you ever been to churches where gossip runs rampant? Right? It's a tough place to be, isn't it? Because, I mean, you can't use three sheets of toilet paper without somebody knowing about it, right? So, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm in construction, so, you know. You just <laughs> Anyways, so... It's kind of like that. If you stay in the middle of that, it sucks you in, right? Because if you're in the middle of a really gospy church, it sucks you in, and before you know it, you're, you're right involved like everybody else. And this was the same. This is what happening, was happening in Jerusalem, but to a very uh, 
deeper, more detrimental degree. It was sucking people into this kind of lifestyle where they're looking for all the faults of everybody around them and trying to make accusations and drag them back and, and, uh, and bring them before the priest and have them accused. So this is what's happening. So when Jesus is giving out these warnings, this is what he's warning against. He's saying, don't get involved with these people. If you find yourself getting sucked in, get out of Dodge. Because that's the only thing that will save you from the judgment of Gehenna. Okay? This is not a modern-day warning that we should all be plucking our eyeballs out. Some people actually teach that. It's ridiculous. That's not what Jesus is saying here at all. This was specific to the people in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say, uh, give out warnings about who we should fear. And what the warnings were, um, what the warnings were about fear him who has authority to cast you into Gehenna. And who has authority to cast people into Gehenna? The Roman soldiers did. So what Jesus is saying is, don't fear the people around you, but fear when the Romans come marching in. Because that's when trouble's going to start. All right? Fear them. And then you say, okay, but maybe, like, are we really sure that Gehenna is not some kind of a, a parallel of hell or some kind of description of hell or something like that? Are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure about that. And, you, and so you might say, well, what about this fire in Gehenna? And, and we talk about, you know, you're facing the fire of Gehenna and everything. Is that not hell? Well, in Mark 9:43, Jesus says this, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. Notice he said unquenchable. That does not mean eternal fire. That does not mean everlasting fire. That means they can't put the fire out. It's unquenchable. So what that means is you can't avoid the judgment of Gehenna if you're in Jerusalem. You can't avoid it. It's coming. It cannot be extinguished. So this is inevitable. The fire is unquenchable in the, in the sense that it's coming. Whether you like it or not, you can't do anything about it. It's coming. This is not hellfire. This is Gehenna fire. They couldn't stop the event from happening. That's what unquenchable fire meant. But the fire's out now. Why? Because the last body was burned. There's no more fire in Gehenna. I could probably find you a picture of Gehenna. You will not see a fire there right now. It's actually quite a lush, nice valley right now. Okay? So it is not hellfire. It was Gehenna fire. Uh, it is not eternal or everlasting. It was unquenchable in the fact that they couldn't stop it from happening. Okay? So I blew that through that pretty quick. I'm getting winded a little bit, which is fine. Because I want to get to the next, uh, the next word in the New Testament that we interpret as hell. Okay? The next word we interpret as hell is Hades. I'm sure you've all heard of this, this word as well. Now, what language was the New Testament written in? Greek? Greek. Okay? So Hades is the Greek word for basically what we know, uh, or what was known then as the underworld. Okay? Now, Pretty much all the nations at, in that day and age believed in the underworld in one form or fashion. They weren't all identical in their belief systems. But you had, you had the Jews who believed in the underworld. They called it Sheol. Sheol was the Hebrew word, which you'll find in the Old Testament. Okay? So the underworld to the Jews was Sheol. The, um, the Greeks called it uh, Hades. 
The Romans had their beliefs in it. The Egyptians had their beliefs in it. Pretty much everybody in the area had their beliefs in the underworld. Okay? But herein lies the problem and the challenge. Is Hades a place or is it a person? Well, we need to go to some Greek mythology to see this, how this all plays out. Now, I'm not into Greek mythology and whatnot, but the fact that it was written in Greek and they used the word Hades kind of opens the door to go there to kind of just kind of get a little background on what's going on here. Um, so we go to the Greek mythology and we find out that Hades was a person. Actually, a quote-unquote God, small g, okay? And let me just give a little disclaimer here. I'm uncomfortable using the word God when we're coming to Greek mythology. That's, that's what it is. I'm uncomfortable using that term, but um, I mean, I'd be more comfortable saying they were angels or something like that, but maybe fallen angels when we're talking about Greek mythology gods. The Bible does talk about powers and principalities and rulers of darkness and such things, so maybe there's merit there as well. I don't know. I don't have those kinds of answers. But, um, but Greek mythology refers to them as gods, small g, okay? Now, Hades was, was one of three brothers. His parents were Cronus and Rhea. And one day, the three brothers got together and approached Cronus, and they said, we want to have uh, power and authority. We want to rule over, over very, various dominions and whatnot. And Cronus said, no, you're not ready. So the three brothers rounded up all the other young gods of their time, and then they went against the older gods, and a war broke out, which, according to Greek mythology, lasted 10 years. Now, the older gods were referred to as the Titans. Okay, they were the Titans. The younger gods fought the Titans for 10 years, and at the end of it, came out victorious. So the younger gods, the three older brothers in particular, got together, and they drew straws, drew, drew uh, lots, drew straws, to find out who gets to rule what. The first brother drew a straw, and the straw represented the skies. So he became the ruler of the skies. Anyone want to guess what his name was? Zeus, exactly. The next brother drew the, drew the lot that was identified as the seas. Anyone know what his name is? Poseidon, exactly. The third brother was Hades, and he got to rule the underworld. Now, he was not happy about this, but he honored it because it was, it was fair. And the Greeks' view of Hades was that he was an honorable man, or God, whatever you want to call him. And uh, he was just, but he had one hard, fast rule that he would not break. And that is people come into the underworld, they do not leave. That was his one hard, fast rule. But apart from that, he was seen as just and not by any means an evil man. So he begins to rule the underworld. I got to keep up to speed here. I'm going too fast. Okay, so Hades, the, um, the actual meaning of, of the name Hades is the unseen one. Remember going back to the word hell, it was, what was it, someone who hides or is unseen, something to that effect, right? So we're seeing a lot of similarities here now. Hades is, is known as the unseen one, and he was the ruler of the underworld. Now eventually over time, people began to refer to the underworld as Hades in honor of its ruler. 
Okay, so belief in the underworld is widely accepted in most nations in biblical times. And then we get into looking at um, the makeup of, of the underworld, of uh, what people have commonly referred to as Hades. So, there was, um, according to Greek mythology, five rivers running through Hades. There was one river running across the top of Hades, and I really need to get my, my, my wording proper here. I'm going to try and stick with calling it the underworld so we don't get confused, okay? So, there's five rivers running through the underworld. The top one running across the top was apparently what separated the underworld from the upper world. We are now in the upper world right now. And that river, for most of you people from my generation, you'll recognize this name, if you're a good old rock and roller like myself. <laughs> that river was the River Styx, S-T-Y-X, just like the rock and roll band from the 70s and 80s. Which, by the way, I hear they're out touring again. Only instead of the skinny leather pants and long hair, um, they probably look a lot like me, only maybe with not, without any hair. So... <laughs> Um, it's comical to look at the old rock and rollers nowadays, isn't it? Anyways. Um, so, there's this river Styx that, that divided the underworld from the upper world. And herein lies a quandary. The five rivers apparently divided up the underworld into different sections. The different sections were designed for different levels of, call it torment, call it recompense, call it what you want, but it wasn't all bad, okay? So we were, were we not taught that believers go to heaven and sinners go to hell? We were taught that, right? Okay. Here's the problem with the underworld. If you think the underworld is hell, here's the problem with it. According to popular belief, everybody went to the underworld. Everybody, Right? So if you were a blessed person, considered a blessed person, like Abraham, for instance, then you would go to what was known as the island of the blessed in the underworld. Okay? And then there were other various levels of, you know, maybe not so bad a person and somebody's really bad. And then the third word, I'm going to pop it in right here. I'm not going to spend any time on it. The third word that's used in the New Testament uh, that's been replaced by the word hell, is in the word Tartarus. Tartarus was an area within the underworld that was reserved for the worst of the worst. Uh, and that's where the Titans went after the battle was won by the young gods. Okay? And Peter actually referred to that verse, or that, uh, referred that word once in one of his letters. He was talking about how that uh, when the angels sinned, uh, that God sent the angels there to Tartarus. Okay. So, uh, belief in all this was, was quite commonplace. They believed that everybody went there. Uh, good, bad, whatever, everybody went there. Okay? Um, now, this is interesting. You all remember the story that Jesus told about uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar, and how that in life, Lazarus was begging for food, and the rich man wouldn't help him out, and then they both die. Lazarus goes to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell, basically, is the way we're taught it, right? Well, this was prior to the crucifixion. 
So theoretically, I mean, I've never visited the underworld, but theoretically, that's the underworld was still in effect, still there, uh, prior to the cross. And so the story I think that Jesus is really telling here is not that, that um, the rich man is hollering out of hell to heaven because that's something that just ne- never made sense to me. I'm kind of like, you know, heaven's supposed to be up here somewhere and hell's down there somewhere and there's supposed to be this great gulf that divides it all. And how does, how does some guy get the attention of Abraham up in heaven and from hell? And it just didn't seem to make sense, okay? So I think what's really going on here, what Jesus is really saying is Abraham and Lazarus are on the island of the blessed in the underworld. And maybe they're walking along the shoreline, and the rich man is just on the other side of the water in the not-so-desirable part of the underworld. And he sees them cross the water, and he hollers over. He says, hey, uh, like, I'm dying over here. Can you spot me some water, please? Right? I think that makes more sense of what's going on here. And things are going to change once we get to the crucifixion period here. But I believe that that's really what Jesus was saying here is that they were all in the underworld, but they could see across the water. They could communicate. Okay? Now, Jesus dies on the cross. And I'm sure we've all read many of the, the verses surrounding the crucifixion and, and his resurrection and some of the things he said after his resurrection and some of the things that are said in Revelation about his resurrection. So Jesus says in Revelation 1 verse 18, I died and behold I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus has the, death, uh, the keys of death and Hades a lot of the, the translations say he has the keys to hell. That's not the original language. The original language is the keys of Hades. Hades is not actually a place so much as a person. Okay? So here's what I see. Jesus went to the underworld when he died because that's where everybody went. Right? Then Jesus has a battle with death, who I'm going to stick my neck out and say, that's the death angel... Remember the death angel appeared in Exodus, killed all the firstborn? All right, so I'm going to say, to me that makes sense, that Jesus fought the death angel, and he fought the person, Hades. And he took the keys from death, he took the keys from Hades. And he flings open the gates of the underworld, and he comes back to life. Okay? Now... When nations are are battling against nations, the victor is not truly victorious until the king of the losing nation is killed. And what they did back then was they gathered up all of the generals, all of the captains, anybody who led any of the armies, and they either killed them or they imprisoned them. And the reason for that was so that there would be no leadership left to re-rally the losing army to be able to come and, and uh, present a counterattack to the winning army, right? Now, do you think that when Jesus uh, won the battle between uh, death and, and Hades and took the keys away from them and w- was walking out the gates of the underworld, do you think he turned back and said, well, guys, it's been a blast. Uh, just, just remember, I won here, and uh, just go about your business, and I'll go about mine, and we'll all be good. Do you think that's what happened? I don't think so. 
I don't think so, because the battle's not truly over until something is done with the losers of the battle, right? So then, we go to Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, remember I said earlier there's one verse I was so hung up on for many, many years? That's the one. Because I couldn't understand... First off, we were taught that Hades was hell, okay? We were also taught that the lake of fire is where? In hell? Okay. So how is it that hell was thrown into hell? Because that's really how it reads, if that's what your understanding is, right? If the lake of fire is in hell, and death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire, then hell was thrown into hell. It makes no sense to me, right? And I got so hung up on that. And then when I started doing this studying, and I found out that Hades is not hell, Hades is a person, then it makes sense. Death, the death angel, and Hades, the person, were thrown into the lake of fire. When did this happen? Well, I have to believe it happened when Jesus defeated them. Why would he just let them roam around after they're defeated? To re-rally everybody against them? No. He had to deal with them when he defeated them. Then you say, but wait a minute. This is in Revelation. Revelation is prophetic. Are you sure about that? Are you really sure about that? Because uh, verse 19 of chapter 1, Jesus is telling John, write down these things that I'm showing you, the things that are happening now, and the things that will happen later. So, when John was writing down Revelation, some of it, while he was writing it, was current events. Current events. And yes, some of it was prophetic. But what if, and this I'm going to get in trouble for. I know it. <laughs> I know I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get some bad, bad feedback on this one. But what if Revelation is now a history book rather than a prophetic book? What if? Does that change everything? It changes things extremely. It's like, it's mind-blowing when you start to think of the implications of it all. What if it's a history book? Is it past? Is it present? Or is it future? We're always told it's future. But you know what? Here's the thing. Um, evolutionists. Uh, you know, I'm not an evolutionist. I, I don't believe in that. I believe wholeheartedly what the Bible says, uh, straight up when, about creation. But here's the thing. Uh, the evolutionists, when, they, when people press them to say, okay, but how does this really happen? How, how does something that lives in the ocean all of a sudden grow legs and start walking on the land? And then how, how does something that's a monkey all of a sudden become a human being and we still have monkeys? Like... Why, what is all that? How do you explain all that? And they only have one answer. Millions of years. That's their only answer. They throw in this wild card that says millions of years because they can't understand it and they can't explain it. Relate that to the book of Revelation. What is the wild card here? If we can't understand and can't understand Revelation, then what's the wild card? The wild card is, well, that's all in the future. Yeah, we don't, we don't understand it. It's all in the future. Right? That's the wild card. But what if 
it's history. What if it's history? And it's hard for us to understand it because it's got so much spiritual world imagery, and we don't really understand that. But don't be surprised if it's more of a history book than a prophetic book. Okay. Well, if that wasn't interesting, it's going to get really interesting now. All right? So, Jesus throws the angel of death and Hades into the lake of fire. Now, what is the lake of fire? Well, I started doing some studying on that, and I started looking through some of the visions that God gave certain people in the Bible, one of them being John, who he wrote about in Revelation. So, John had this vision of the throne room, all right? In John's vision, he sees the Ancient of Days sitting in a throne with light and lightning coming out of the throne. Everything is shrouded in light. There's so much light you can't even see who's sitting in the throne, but you know who it is. And he sees this this light coming off the throne, and he sees this river of life flowing from the throne. It's the water of life that Jesus talked about. It's the river of life flowing from the throne, and it flows into a lake like glass, a crystal sea, if you will. And I'm sure you've all heard of that. But here's the interesting thing that I don't think people really talk about much. In Revelation 15, 2, it says, The sea of glass mingled with fire. So there's fire in the sea of glass that's, that's being fed by the river of life flowing from the throne in the throne room. All right? Now, Daniel had the same vision. Only Daniel's vision was totally something different, but the same. In Daniel's vision, Daniel sees the throne. He sees the ancients of days sitting in the throne, but he sees fire coming off the throne. Not light, fire. And everything's on fire. There's fire coming off the ancient of days. There's fire coming off the throne. And from the throne is flowing a river of fire. Not water, fire. But it, it's, in my mind, he's seeing the same thing, but he's seeing it differently. One sees the light and the water. The other sees fire. Okay? Now, Daniel stops short of saying that the river of fire went into a lake of fire. But I think it makes sense that river has to flow into a bigger body of water. Right? Now, he does mention, uh, a couple of verses after verse 10, he does mention that the beast was thrown into the fire. Okay, so it's all, it's all connected, all right? So now we have John seeing light and, and water, river of life, and a crystal sea, and Daniel sees fire everywhere he looks, all right? What is going on here? What is the difference? Why are they seeing kind of like the same thing but different? Well, there's a couple different views of this. And might I say this, we need to remember now that that Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay? So, the underworld, once Jesus um, went to the underworld, defeated death and hell, or sorry, defeated death and Hades, and threw them into the lake of fire, the gates of the underworld are now wide open. 
Jesus said he'd come back within that generation. And while he's gone, he's going to prepare a place for everybody. He comes back in 70 AD, just like he said. In Matthew chapter 24, he said he would do that. And that's when the fire of Gehenna happened. Okay, So he comes back. And then, in my opinion, from that day forward, that's when, if you died after that, then basically it's a heaven or hell scenario. It's not an underworld scenario anymore. The underworld has been, the gates are wide open, everybody's been released from the underworld. Okay? Now, when I say it's a heaven or hell proposition, that's an old evangelical theology that I don't really agree with anymore. Okay? To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Now, you'll say, okay, but the universalists, they, they trump that verse and they say, everybody just goes to heaven. Right? Well, I don't think it's like that either. It's not that simple. Let's put it this way. If you reject God's love, right? If you reject God's love, turn away from him, I don't see you sitting around the crystal sea waving back and forth singing kumbaya with all the believers. Right? It ain't going to happen. You're not going to be sitting in the clouds strumming a harp. Ain't going to happen. Okay? So what does happen? I mean, if I'm going to stand here and tell you that the Bible actually doesn't talk about hell, it talks about the fire of Gehenna, which happened in 70 AD, and it talks about Hades the person, which, by the way, if you ever read any more verses that mention the word Hades anymore, there's only about possibly two, really only one, but possibly two, that you can interpret as a place. But if you read it in the mindset that Hades is a person, it will make perfect sense to you every time you read those verses from here on forward. You will, it will just change the whole dynamic of the verses, and you'll see Hades as a person. Okay, But if I'm going to stand here and say that that's all behind us now, then I have to tell you what happens in the future. And that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. And again, with my evangelical background, um, it's really hard to explain because I, I honestly do believe that's flawed. And I will tell you this that the first-generation evangelicals and the third-generation evangelicals, don't even, they're not even on the same wavelength, that the evangelical theology has changed so dramatically that it's nothing like what it was when the movement first started. And so there's a lot of varying opinions. But the one thing that has stayed relatively consistent over the years is the orthodox view. Now you're going to say, okay, but wait a minute. We're not orthodox here. No, we're not. But I will tell you something. The Orthodox has something to say. And I'm going to read you a passage from a book called uh, The River of Fire. So in other words, the fire that Daniel saw, the river of fire. Okay? And Daniel saw this river of fire. And the Orthodox have an explanation for that. And they wrote a little book on it. And I think it's worth reading because... Like I say, the Orthodox, they've got this fairly sound belief system. Um, and they really haven't changed a whole lot over the years, like the evangelical theology has. And I'm going to preference this by saying that I don't agree with all of their terminology. I really don't. They talk about unbelievers as sinners. They talk about unbelievers as infidels, which I'm just going to read it here for you. But there's value in what they're saying here in, in some of the theology, okay? I don't agree with all the terminology, 
but some of the theology is going to blow your mind. Okay, so I'm going to read uh, from page 35 of this little booklet called The River Fire. It's written from an orthodox point of view. And yes, I need my glasses because it's very small print and it's very blurry even with my glasses. So bear with me. God is a loving fire, and he is a loving fire for all, good or bad. There is, however, a great difference in the way people receive this loving fire of God. St. Basil says that the sword of the fire was placed at the gate of the paradise to guard the approach of the tree of life. It was a terrible and burning it was terrible and burning toward infidels, but kindly accessible toward the faithful, bringing them to the light of day. The same loving fire brings the day to those who respond to love with love and burns those who respond to love with hatred. Paradise and hell are one and the same river of God. A loving fire which embraces and covers all with the same beneficial will without any difference or discrimination. The same vivifying water is life eternal for the faithful and death eternal for the infidels. For the first, it is their element of life. For the second, it is the instrument of their eventual suffocation. Paradise for the one is hell for the other. Do not consider this strange. The son who loves his father will feel happy in his father's arms. But if he does not love him, his father's loving embrace will, tor- will be a torment to him. This is also why when we love the man who hates us, it is likened to pouring lighted coals and hot embers on his head. I say, writes St. Isaac the Syrian, that those who are suffering in hell are suffering and being scourged by love. It is totally false to think that sinners in hell are deprived of God's ably given or sorry, deprived of God's love. Love is a child of the knowledge of truth and is unquestionably given commonly to all. But God's but love's power acts in two ways. It torments sinners, while at the same time it delights those who have lived in accord with it. God is love. If we really believe this truth, We know that God never hates, never punishes, never takes vengeance. As Abba always says, love never hates anyone, never reproves anyone, never condemns anyone, never grieves anyone, never abhors anyone, neither faithful, nor infidel, nor stranger, nor sinner, nor fornicator, nor anyone impure, but instead it is precisely sinners and weak, neglected souls that it loves more and feels pain for them, and grieves, and laments, and it feels sympathy for the wicked and sinners more than the good, imitating Christ who called sinners, and ate and drank with them. For this reason, showing what real love is, he taught, saying, Become good and merciful like your Father in heaven, and as he reigns on the bad and the good, and makes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust alike, so also is the one who has real love, and has compassion and praise for all. Isn't that mind-blowing? So what the Orthodox is saying is that the river of life and the river of fire are the same thing. It's how we receive it. It's how we perceive it. Do we reciprocate God's love, or do we reject God's love? 
if we reciprocate God's love, it's a warm embrace. It's our security. If we reject it, it burns. It's, a, it's an interesting um, theology. I don't know really where it all goes from there, but somehow it resonates with me. If you accept God's love, just like your, if you love your own father and have no ill will towards your own father, you accept his loving embrace. But if you become that rebellious teenager and you develop this hatred for your father, when he tries to embrace you, it's like pouring coals on your head. You hate it. You want to run from it. All right? And according to the orthodox theology, it's the same way with God's love. Now, if you really think this through, remember that Jesus, according to Revelation, threw the angel of death and Hades into the lake of fire. If the river of fire is actually God's love, that means the lake of fire is actually God's love. So am I saying that death and Hades got thrown into God's love? Yeah. I am. And however long it takes for the fire to do its job, we don't know. But the, the job that the fire is doing is scourging away the things that's blocking us from accepting and reciprocating God's love. So for those who accept it, it's a warm embrace. For those who reject it, it burns. It's a very interesting thought. I'm actually getting through this a lot quicker than I thought. I'm going to close with a couple of recommendations. Um, so again, if, if there really isn't a hell, then what happens to the non-believers when it's all said and done? Well, there's a couple of good books that I recommend on the subject. One is written by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's a very easy reading book. It's written in typical C.S. Lewis fashion. It's kind of like a fictional story that's designed to, to get a point across. Uh, and just just uh, case in point was like first-generation evangelicals, first and second generation, love C.S. Lewis. Like he, was, like, he walked on water to them. But third and fourth generation, they think he's off the wall. That's how much theology has changed. Okay? But anyway, C.S. Lewis has some really interesting thoughts about this. And then the other person who has some really interesting thoughts about this is actually a fellow Canadian, lives out west. His name is Bradley Jerzak. Uh, he wrote this book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. I highly, highly, highly recommend this book. He's got some really, really interesting insights to this as well. But um, it's, it's a really, really interesting subject. Uh, it really stretches your thinking. Uh, Mike has a lot of cleanup to do now. <laughs> <laughs> When Mike asked me what I was talking about, I told him, and he says, you know what? He says, I was going to do a mini-series on it, because quite honestly, I mean, I, could, I should be spending three or four hours on this. I'm just bouncing off the highlights. There's really no time to get into depth in one sitting with this. Uh, I'm sure that, that someday down the road, uh, not too far off, that Mike will probably do a mini-series on it and try and explain it in more depth and detail. Uh, I'm just glad I don't have to be here to clean up the mess. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for the love that you have for each and every one of us. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that, that you are so loving and caring and that your, your love is a warm embrace to us who accept you and that your love always works towards the ultimate goal 
of expressing itself to, to every, every single person that ever walked the face of your creation. Thank you for this, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.